Well, we're continuing our series today looking at some of the parables of Jesus, specifically what are known as the kingdom parables recorded for us in Matthew 13 and in part of Mark's gospel. And what we see as we go through the parables is that each one of them is actually uh, giving an answer to a question that people tend to have about God and his ways of working uh, in the world. And so last week we talked about the parable of the sower. And the question really being dealt with uh, there was why some believe the message of Christianity while others don't. So why some have ears to hear and why others do not. This week we come to what's been called the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And essentially the question that's being asked here is uh, why, if this is God's world and his kingdom exists, is it so impure? Why, in other words, it's a variation on the problem of evil. Why the evil in this world? And so... Uh, with that in mind, uh, let us listen to the parable and its interpretation recorded in Matthew 13. It goes like this. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went, to, went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying through this parable to us tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is a question that I think we've all had at one time or another, at least if we've had any experience in this life. And it really is that simple. If God truly rules over this world, if he is Lord of heaven and earth, as we sang in our songs here tonight, uh, then why the suffering? Why the problems? Why, to use the language of our parable, why the weeds? How did this happen? And so to answer the question, Jesus leads us through, I believe we can see four aspects of God's story in this. And frankly, what they end up being is they end up being the aspects of the whole narrative of Scripture. And so what we're going to look at tonight is we're going to see first Jesus talk about God's creation and intention for the world. Secondly, we're going to see the corruption of his world. 
Third, what he's done to redeem the world. And finally, what he's going to do to restore the world to what it was always meant to be. So first of all, the creation of God's world. If you have your bulletin, look in there again. Jesus says in the story that a man representing Jesus, representing God, sowed good seed in his field, representing the world. The field is the world. Now let's just pause there and extrapolate what he's saying. Initially, the man created everything good. God created the world good. After God got done creating humanity, he said it was very good. Indeed, in the origin story of Genesis 1 and 2, uh, of, of our world, the origin story, that's actually what Genesis means, origins. Uh, that's the picture that's created. God creates the world and it's awesome. Everything is amazing. There's peace, love, joy, harmony between man and God. Everybody is relating exactly as we were destined to relate. And I think really the capstone verse that kind of shows how good the world was simply says this. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now I say that because the point of that verse is to show that life was so good that people felt no fear, no shame, no fear of being vulnerable with one another. They could just be truly who they were. That was the world God intended to create. That was how it was created. The field was good. Simple enough. But let me pause here to contrast an alternative narrative. When it comes to our world, when it comes to the universe, uh, there is a very popular narrative also running around in our world, I think especially in places like New York City and in the modern West, and that is that this world is not particularly created at all. It is, uh, it came together out of nothing. And from nothing, eventually something, namely matter, accidentally or randomly happened. We're not quite sure how it could have happened from nothing, but it happened. And from nothing after billions of years of matter kind of randomly existing within the universe, eventually sentient life came to be. In this narrative, there is no design uh, for how the universe is to operate. There is no ultimate right or wrong, good or evil. There just happens to be a lot of things. And some of those things happen to be sentient life. There is, of course, no meaning to life. And there is no God. That is one narrative that exists in our culture. And the Christian narrative says the opposite. The Christian narrative essentially says, yes, there is a God. The universe was designed and operates according to laws set up by its creator. In other words, there's a certain level of predictability to the way the world runs, to the way the universe operates. Because people are created in God's image, humanity is infinitely valuable. Life does really have significance and purpose and meaning and morality does exist. There are such things as that are right and such things that are wrong. 
And ultimately, ultimately, that view, I believe, matches with the experience of life as we live it. If one is to take the prior narrative, one has to explain away how it is that you have such a deep sense that your life isn't any more valuable than a, than a rock you find in the middle of the desert. But deep down, we all know we are. We have this deep sense that we matter, that life matters, that the things we do have consequences. That comes from a narrative that says, this was designed. This was created. And initially, it was created good. It was created good. And yet, as the parable goes on to show, it doesn't last long before the good is spoiled. And so that's what Jesus leads us to next. He shows us that indeed something has gone wrong, that the world has been corrupted. So, look again at your text. He says, while a man was sleeping, his enemy, he later goes on to tell us that represents the devil, comes and sows weeds, or sons of the devil, among the wheat, and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. So now the world that was created good has been spoiled. Indeed, again, in the origin story of the Bible, that's exactly what happens. Genesis 1 and 2, great, 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 great. Genesis 3, bad news all the way through. Amazingly, God's enemy, Satan, tempts humanity to believe that God is holding out something on them, that he's hiding the, the really good life from them. And so the first humans rebel against their creator, believing that they will be a more effective God and a better ruler of their own life. And as a result of this rebellion, the scriptures say now this world that was created good now has suffering and pain, robberies and cheating and adultery, and according to the entropy laws, is headed for decay inevitably. The first thing you read in Genesis 3, after Genesis 2, where we hear that man and woman are naked and unashamed. The very next thing you read after they have rebelled against God is they're looking to hide from one another and from God. Naked and ashamed. Now again, contrast that narrative with the narrative that says there is no creator. In the non-creator narrative, the corruption that we experience on a daily basis, in fact, is not really corruption at all, but simply just the way things are. This is nature doing what nature does. Bread in tooth and claw. Brutal. This is why many... Uh, who hold to a non-creator narrative struggle to explain certain things about humanity. Because, see, see we're presenting a, a tension here. We are saying that, in one sense, we are created infinitely valuable and good. And yet, in the other sense, we recognize that we're corrupted. 
And so it's possible for us to be capable of doing great good things and yet also at the same time to be capable of doing great evil, great harm. But those who have a non-creator or no creator narrative struggle to explain things like altruism. Because if we're, if we're purely here, as those who would hold to that narrative would suggest, just to merely extend our bloodline, then why on earth would anybody run into a burning building to rescue complete strangers? Altruism makes no sense in a world in which it's all supposed to be red and tooth and claw. But for the Christian worldview, we understand that that indeed is possible. That somebody could do something very altruistic, very sacrificial, and yet at the same time be incredibly selfish and commit even great evil. Both things are there within us. I think it was Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian thinker uh, who had spent so many years imprisoned in the Soviet era, uh, Soviet era Russia, who said that there's a line running in every human heart between great good and great evil. Indeed, that is a Christian worldview. And again, it matches with our experience. We, we, there's a sense in which this matches. So, okay, what we've got so far presented, we've got a field, and we've got, uh, we've got a, a field that's been corrupted with weeds. We've got a good world, but it's been corrupted. Now, Jesus says, okay, I've shown you that picture. Now let's move on to what the plan is to redeem this world from the weeds. In the parable, the servants of the owner of the field notice all the, the weeds and immediately propose a solution. Do you want us to go and gather them? What a perfect solution! This idea makes so much sense to us. We see evil in the world, we see imperfections, and we say, I know what we need to do. If we just snuff out this group of people, if we just kill this group, then we'll be okay. Then finally, evil will be vanquished. This is their solution. You want us to take them out. And Jesus says, hmm, hold up. The impulse, though, is in all of us. The impulse is there, religious or non-religious. We see what we consider to be the problems of the world that we look to vanquish it. In various degrees, within the church, the way this has shown itself was with things like the Inquisition. That was what it was all about. Do you want us to go and gather them? We'll go and gather them. The heretics, those who aren't preaching the gospel the way it should be preached, let's burn them. Or outside of the church, in the, just the last century, numerous dictators had visions of the way society was supposed to be. And those who got in the way of that vision for society were inconvenient and needed to be killed. And so tens of millions of people were killed in the name of political ideologies because... Our instinct is to say, want us to go and gather them? Let's go take them out. Now, we're sitting here tonight, I mean, we're, you know, we're sophisticated people. We're modern people. And I don't think there's anybody in this room 
there's ever thought to themselves, yes, I want to kill somebody. Except maybe when you're on the road and somebody cuts you off or something, maybe that's come through your head like, I could kill you right now. But my guess is that's probably not the case. Nevertheless, nevertheless, don't you believe for a moment that we are not capable of vanquishing what we see as out of bounds, gathering them up? It happens on social media all the time. Just watch what can happen if you make a politically incorrect statement on Twitter or say something that is deemed out of bounds. John Ronson, a writer, novelist, a few years ago wrote a book all about this new form of rooting up evil uh, called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And in the book, he tells various stories of people who have uh, lost jobs, had to change identities, moved to new homes even, moved to completely new areas because they said something on Twitter that went viral, they got retweeted a bunch of times, and people started threatening them. People were asking, demanding that they would lose their jobs, and in many cases, companies gave in because there was such public pressure. It's real. That happens all the time. And so Ronson gave a TED talk about this, and, and he, uh, he was asked uh, why it is that we're so prone to sort of ganging up and shaming someone. Why it even feels good for us. And he said this. It's because Twitter is basically a mutual approval machine. We surround ourselves with people who feel the same way we do and we approve each other, and that's a really good feeling. And if somebody gets in the way, we scream them out. He went on, you know, when we watch courtroom dramas, we tend to identify with the kind-hearted defense attorney, but give us the power, and we become like the hanging judges. End quote. And so in response to the question, do you want us to gather them up? Do you want us to root out the evil? Jesus, the owner of the field, makes it clear that as tempting as that might be, that's not the answer. Not yet. What he does say is simply this. No, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Now this farmer doesn't seem to make any agricultural sense to us at all. What do you mean you're just going to let the wheat and the weeds grow together? But there's a, there's a very... There's a very understandable reason for this. Scholars will tell you that initially the wheat and the weeds that are being discussed here look almost identical. And only after fruit has been born can you tell the difference between the wheat and the weeds. But more than that, what's most important and what he alludes to here is that the weeds' roots intermingle with the roots of the wheat. And if you pull up the weeds, then you're going to pull up wheat. You're going to pull up everything. The idea is that in your quest for purity, you'll inevitably end up hurting everyone else around you. I think it was G.K. Chesterton that said once, those who love the world the most tend to hate their neighbor the most also. There's this real fear that if we start pulling up everybody, vanquishing everybody that seems to be evil in our mind, that we'll end up hurting everyone. And why is that? Because the rest of the scripture's testimony is that the corruption of our world has gone so far 
that in truth, by our nature, none of us are very weedy anymore. We've all become weeds. We all now are weeds. The weeds are not just out there somewhere. The evil in the world is not just because of them or that. The evil in the world ultimately has just as much to do with my heart as it does with them and with you. In the final analysis, what we're called to acknowledge is that we can't pull up the bad seed because we got the bad seed in us too. As Romans 2.1 says, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So we can't root up any weeds. Because we end up rooting up ourselves. Now I say all this, I mean, this is all very understandable, but I still have not given you an answer for how God intends to redeem this world. All I'm talking about is this downer stuff about how we're all weeds. I haven't gotten you there yet, so let me get you there. Jesus says this, it's in verse 30, this is the answer and this is the crux of the message, okay? This is how the owner of the field is going to take care of the field. Listen very closely, he says verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. The harvest represents the end of the world. The answer to how the field owner is going to redeem the field is actually found in that very first word, let. Well, that seems underwhelming. But I want you to look a little closer at that word. That word let in Greek, and I'm not usually, i got to tell you, usually I'm not the preacher that will stand up and be like, Listen, I'm going to tell you the secrets that Greek will give you that you never would have known. But in this case, in this case, it's warranted because here's the thing about that word let. Depending on the context, it can either be translated, the word is afiani, it can either be translated let or it can sometimes, many times, about a third of the time it's used in the New Testament, be translated forgive depending on the context. So for example, the Lord's Prayer that we read earlier, that we prayed, says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That is that word. Afieni, our trespasses, as we, Afieni, those who trespass against us. What is Jesus alluding to here? What is his answer to the problem of evil? What is he going to do? Here's what he's going to do. Here's what he, his radical plan for dealing with the weeds is to forgive the weeds. And by doing so, make them into wheat. That's what he's alluding to here. Because Jesus Christ has paid all our debts on his cross and has risen from the dead in victory, he has made it so that you and I are forgiven. 
We're forgiven for the ways in which we have not been very wheat-like. And here's what happens when one is forgiven. We no longer have the old identity, but we become something that bears fruit. Here's the, here's the idea that's being presented. Jesus has let him go until the end of the world. Let me take you to 2 Peter chapter 3 where he says this. This will explain it another way. He's talking about the end of the world and people are asking, well, why isn't God coming back yet? Why isn't the world ending yet? And this is Peter's answer to why the world still goes on today. He says this, he is patient, God is, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's it. The only reason he hasn't vanquished this evil world yet that's been taken over with weeds is because he desires still to make weeds into wheat. He desires to look out there in our world to our neighbors, to the worst among us, to the worst in our hearts, and he desires to have you and them as his good field. That's the parable so far. The world was created good, the world's been corrupted, the world's been redeemed, and now because of that, we come to the final part of God's story, and that is his restoration. Jesus continues, at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The conclusion of this parable is the conclusion of our world. One day evil is going to be vanquished forever. So scripture's answers to the problem of evil basically come down to two things. Number one, uh, yes, evil resides among us right now, but God is not distant from it. God gets involved in it. And number two, one day evil will be vanquished. For those who insist on remaining weeds, unwilling, unwilling, to accept the declaration of Jesus Christ that they are indeed wheat through faith in him, they will eventually go to their chosen destination, to destruction. But to those who simply accept Jesus' declaration that you are indeed his wheat, even if everything inside of you feels more like a weed most of the time, well, to you, growth will happen, fruit will happen, and you'll be restored to the paradise that you were always meant for. As he says at the end, you will shine. You will shine. Peace, love, harmony, and incredible joy will be ours forever. Unashamed. Unhidden. So that's the question for all of us as we, as we wrap up here. Where do you want to end up? Where do you want to end up? Don't you want a world without pain and suffering anymore? Don't you want that? Will there be no more sadness, no more sorrow? It's yours for the taking. It's yours because Jesus Christ declares you to be his wheat. We bow me for a word of prayer. Father, you know the hearts of those who you brought here tonight. You know the parts of them that are struggling. I pray that they would hold on to the declaration through your word, that they are valuable in your sight, and that they are fruitful. 
I pray that you would help them to trust in you as they walk from here this evening. And as we prepare to come to the table now, I pray that you give us open hearts to receive what we so desperately need in substitution for our sinful selves, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name.